Chapter 1 The worst thing about New York City was subways. You had to sit on plastic that was warm from somebody else's bottom just in panties because in 1968 you wore polyester micro-minis. I tried to convince myself there was no way to get pregnant from a subway seat, but sperm were little tenacious things whose only purpose was to wreck your life. By my third work morning, I was riding standing up and swinging from a vertical pole that was foul with dried bits of who knew what. I had not been looking forward to the subway trip home, and then after that the four-block walk past grimy bums and obscene graffiti to the one-bedroom apartment that I shared with girls who also were fresh out of Smith College. We had taken jobs together in this single-girl mecca in order to seek better-quality husbands. Being young in the 60s was confusing. We had grown up in ponytails and poodle skirts, looking forward to the perfection of marriage, and we had chosen Smith to land Ivy League husbands. I recall that in freshman biology class we were taught about pregnancy and the right trees to choose when we were on tree planting committees. And in our senior year, and all in a moment, we found ourselves marching to protest the war and insisting on women's rights and equal careers. The Vietnam War protests became so disruptive that most colleges closed early that spring. While our horizons were expanding, our clothing was shrinking to the point where my friends and I had learned to keep one hand free to ensure panty coverage. I had ridden to my third day of work on the subway, swinging from a dirty pole, but that same afternoon I was unexpectedly riding in a gray Rolls Royce with an elderly chauffeur in a gray peaked hat. The car's interior smelled like rose-scented polish. Its leather back seat was soft and deep, and having only panties between seemed fine when a contact pregnancy here would mean a blue-blooded baby. The car had slowed to a crawl. All the windows around me were frosted opaque and etched in graceful curlicues because the richest American under the age of 40 didn't care to see outside. I'm sorry, madam. There are protests in Central Park. The voice that seemed to be part of the air came from a gray-haired man with a graceful stoop who had touched his cap and introduced himself as he had held open the back door of this car. His hair was the same dove gray as the car, as was his hat, as was his fine twill uniform that was splendid with buttons and epaulets. The richest young American didn't care to see outside, but I did. I slipped off the seat and crept to kneel and peer through the glass partition that separated back from front. There, far ahead, was the car's long hood with its Rolls-Royce Angel, or whatever that was. The glass partition rolled down like a window. Now I clearly heard the chanting. They are diverting traffic, madam. You'll be required to use the service entrance. Mr. Peters, I've never met Jack Richardson. Can you tell me anything about him? He hesitated. I realized then that I was likely not the first girl to have asked him that question. He said only, I'm sure you understand, madam. I did understand. He couldn't talk about our mutual boss, although if he could have talked, he might have said something useful. He was kindly enough to feel bad about that. Dozens of Smithies had applied for this job when Larkin International had recruited on campus. No one had ever heard of Larkin, but it was located in Lower Manhattan and the job paid a thousand dollars a month. And it was, get this, programming a computer. Larkin had an IBM 360 that consumed most of an entire floor. There were eight beginning programmers in our COBOL class, three of whom had been recruited at Smith, but five of whom were Dartmouth boys. That was nice. 
I realized as we were getting acquainted that all of us had chosen screwy majors because in 1964 we had been assured that liberal arts was the way to go. By 1968 we all were wishing that we had majored in something useful. No matter, the chatty instructor told us, computer programming needed just a logical mind and an English-based language that was easy to learn. And anyway, research was showing that majoring in loopy things like Greek mythology, romantic poets, and early Christian history was a great preparation for computer programming. We were given a tour of the computer on our second work morning. It was burnt orange tape drives like upended beds, card readers the size of Chevrolets, and a monstrous small house called a central processing unit. The future was looking large and bright. Our third day at work was our first day of COBOL classes that were scheduled to run for a month. 